This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue, the next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home? Or takeout. I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork, egg foo young, sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash altitude go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Welcome to Special Sauce, Serious Seeds podcast about food and life. Every week on Special Sauce, we talk to some of the leading lights of American culture, food folks and non-food folks alike. And I think it's probably a good business model for a lot of young people that have gone into food. Find something that's probably going to go out of business, where somebody is ready to retire. There's no kids that are coming into it. You know, make a deal and then, you know, build it in a modern way. And, you know, it's not a bad way to do things. This week, our guest is Rob Kaufelt the owner of Murray's Cheese in New York City's Greenwich Village. Rob has done more for cheese education and bringing great cheese to America than anyone I know. Not only does he have a thriving and gorgeous cheese shop, he set up a cheese school, he has a huge mail order operation, he has a successful cheese-centric restaurant, and this is the most amazing thing of all, he has brought great cheese to Kroger stores all across America. 350 Kroger stores will have Murray's cheese counters in them by the end of 2016. Rob is the cheese whisperer. Welcome, Rob Kaufelt, to Special Sauce. It's so great to have you. It's great to be here. It's good to see you. It's uh, it's always a pleasure, and, and you and I uh, always have a lot to say to each other, and I have a zillion questions having done my usual obsessive research. But let's start with life at the Kaufelt family table. Growing up, I would say that I would describe the food we ate growing up in small-town Highland Park, New Jersey, as uh, Jewish suburban style. My um, family wasn't particularly religious. It was small-town New Jersey in the 50s and 60s. And uh, my dad was a grocer, and my grandfather was a butcher and a grocer. And your great-grandfather was a Talmudic scholar. (laughs) I don't know about that. I think he was in the Tsar's army trying to escape, but... uh, (laughs) 
but but we would have a very routine sort of menu my mom planned you know brisket one night with egg noodles a roast chicken the usual suspects very american in its ethnicity i would say so uh, and of course since our stores the family grocery business was known for its meats it was very meat centric because that's what my father wanted and so it was traditional in the meat starch and veggie sense of the word was the ritual a ritual of pleasure or a ritual of obligation? Well, I think from my father's point of view, food was always a, a very, uh, you know, sensual, sensory experience, as it is for me, or I would say for uh, all of his children, uh, but ob- obligatory from my mother's point of view, you know, because we would come home and eat, you know, at 5.30, but he wouldn't get home from work and have his dinner till 7.30 or 8, typically. So at 5.35, my mother, who was not that interested in food, would snatch the plates away from my brother and me. Our older sister was quite a few years older, so she was gone when we were still young. But things changed when I was 13. When I was 13, uh, my folks had enough money. Uh, They hired a housekeeper, Cora, uh, who was a, an older woman from the Deep South. African-American. African-American, and her son had lived in the area, and that's why she moved up north. And uh, I guess her house cleaning, keeping skills did not meet my mother's standards. And one day my brother and I told, uh, heard uh, my mother tell her that you know it wasn't going to work out. And we really loved her, so we said, no, 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 please, please, please. And she said, you know, Mrs. Caulfield, perhaps you could give me a chance to cook. And uh, my mother said, absolutely not. I do all the cooking in this house. And my brother and I said, but mom, why don't you give, you know, give Cora a chance? You know, let her try cooking. You don't like to do it anyway. Yeah, you don't like to do it anyway. (laughs) So that night, she made us... Southern fried chicken, cooked in Crisco, as I recall, biscuits with honey and butter, and homemade French fries. And you were like, yes! (laughs) We were in heaven, my brother and I. We never had anything like that. You know, even then, we weren't allowed to have fried foods. Oh, my goodness. Then what happened was uh, my mother, uh, slowly and reluctantly, taught Cora how to make the briskets. (laughs) And the roast chickens so were, and the chopped livers of our life. stuff going on. And believe me, it only improved every recipe. <laughs> That's hilarious. So did you immediately gravitate to the family business? Did your parents encourage you to do so? No, no, that was an, that, that was just one in a long line of life's mistakes for me. I was, uh, <laughs> I was traveling around the world back in the day you know, trying to decide what I wanted to do. I'd spent two weeks of graduate school in Ann Arbor in law school. That was uh, a waste. Two weeks. That was a wasted two weeks. You wasted a lot of tuition money. (laughs) I wasted a lot of tuition money. I went back in architecture finally after working in a bookstore, and finally I took off to travel the known world. And when I got home in early 72... My father asked me, uh, he said, do you have any money? I said, no, I'm broke for weeks, months, really. And he said, well, we're opening a new store. You know, we need some help uh, for the grand opening, which is next week, you know, if you can help out down there. 
that would be great. And that's what happened. And I stayed there for the next 15 years. 15 years? Yeah. So that was a lot longer than two months of law school. I'm ending my 45th year of food retail. Oh, my God. At the end of this Christmas season. And you, you still smile. <laughs> I'm smiling at you. <laughs> that's because we have a black sense of humor, you and I. <laughs> so what was it like to actually be in business with your dad? Well, first I had to learn about business, which I wasn't naturally inclined toward. And uh, it's really pretty simple. I mean, the grocery business, a low margin volume business. So it's always about sales and gross profit and labor and all that sort of thing. Pretty straightforward stuff. But uh, in in the mid 70s, one day, my uncle Milton, because he was the vice president of merchandising, called me into his office. He said to me, uh, Robert, uh, effective Monday, you're the new dairy supervisor. I said, what are you talking about, Milton? I don't know anything about dairy. Uh, what about Don? He's the dairy supervisor. Uh, and Milton said, he's the former dairy supervisor, <laughs> Robert, and you'll learn on the job. So on Monday, they gave me the job. They pulled me out of the store and made me the dairy supervisor. I had my first perk, a company car, which was a Ford Pinto. So you Oof, could, not a good first company car. Not a great perk, really, no. So uh, I went around and studied better stores than we had at the time. Uh, the leader probably was Pathmark then. Um, they were coming up and becoming, you know, the main competitor. So these were all sort of mid-level, everyday grocery stores. Yeah, these were. Uh, Pathmark had large superstores. Shoprite had, uh, you know, low price. We didn't have any image at the time. Our stores. We traded under the Food Town banner. Uh, the independent co-ops had taken over the New York market from the large chains, which had dominated the New York market before the independents really took over after World War II. So I learned the dairy business, and actually I became, I fell in love with dairy. Dairy led me to cheese. Even now I love cottage cheese and sour cream. Yogurt departments were new, so I had to reset them all. Right. You know, and, and, and was uh, margarine was bigger than butter, but I couldn't see why because it didn't taste that good. Um, uh, you know, 2% or 1% milk. These were new things back in the day. So uh, I had to learn about them. And I reset all of the dairy departments, the chunks of cheese that you get in the dairy department, you know, the, the cryovac chunks that say mild, medium, aged, right. extra aged cheddar, the yellow cheddar. Yeah, when you were doing this, we're talking Cracker Barrel That's right. days. That's right. And so I learned about those things. I was always curious about where things came from, who produced them. I didn't have any sense then of industrial food versus, let's say, artisan. Yeah, food, right, right. right. Uh, at that time, I was just curious about, about all of it. And so, you know, I had that job for a couple of years, and I learned quite a bit about dairy, including cheese. So later... Um, many years later, 10 years later, when I finally left to do my own thing and opened a couple of gourmet stores in New Jersey where I, I was still at the time, uh, they had, you know, the first cheese departments of the sort that, you know, I have to this day. I assume that you were learning stuff from displayed cheese the way you might find it in a European market, not cryovac Were you doing that even back then? 
Uh, yes, I always went around to see what the latest and greatest was. Obviously, here in New York, you know, we had Balducci's, uh, early Dean and DeLuca on Prince, uh, right. all of the ones that you'll recall, Zabar's, of course, uh, that evolved from whatever it was that their core business was, like um, produce or... Or, 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 or smoked salmon. And, yeah, yeah, or appetizers, right. I would have called it, I suppose. Uh, but I was also looking at supermarkets. I also went to Europe the first time at 19, so, you know, I'd poke around and look at food there. You know, always something to buy. And things always get, um, they get Americanized in our own culture, bagels or croissants or whatever it is. So when I finally had the opportunity to do our first store, I persuaded my father and the rest of them, that uh, we had picked up a store in my sister's neighborhood in East Brunswick, New Jersey. Uh, I, I went to summer camp in East Brunswick, New Jersey. I didn't know that. Yes. What was the name of it? I can't remember. Because <laughs> we're looking at summer camps. Oh, really? Right? For our kids. So we can talk about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I persuaded them. My sister helped uh, us to do the first upscale store. This was in 81, 35 years ago. There were no upscale supermarkets in our market. So uh, uh, so that's what we did. And when we opened, we had uh, pasta and cheese, you remember sure, then. Sure, the first so, fresh pasta company. Right. So we had the machine, and we'd buy the pasta sheets from them, and that was combined with the cheese department. And the first chef who was cooking right the kitchen was right there. And we had a croissant bakery that we, the French were selling a program. And the first European seafood on ice. And a prime butcher shop as well as a self-service. But a lot of things were new then. The pineapple coring machines were new. Salad bars were new. The misters in the produce department. All of that stuff was new. And we threw it all in there, and it worked like crazy. So you know what happened. My father and Uncle Milton and Cousin Melvin and the rest of them, they all said, it's a fluke. <laughs> <laughs> you got Rob lucky. Rob got lucky. <laughs> he got lucky. So we did it again. And after we did all of our suburban stores, half the stores we had were urban. I mean really urban. Right. Uh, Newark, Jersey City. And I said, uh, I think we should do the urban stores. I said, well, this isn't really the right market for that. I said, I don't actually believe that. I believe that the good stuff, whatever it is, is for everybody. It is true that it may be a different product mix or different things that people eat, but that's not the same thing as, as saying that everybody doesn't want the good stuff. Better bread, better produce, better display, nicer stores, better experience. Mm -hmm. And so we did the urban stores, and it worked there, too. But as I say, after a few years, and I spent the last five as, as president, I left to do my own thing. Right. Full-service specialty or gourmet stores, a word I don't like, but you understand. And you opened, so you opened the, the two stores in Jersey. Yeah, and the first one was fine, and, and then the crash of 87 came, and, and uh, that crashed and burned with it. Since our standard of living plunged rather dramatically during that period, I wound up in Greenwich Village. <laughs> Penniless. Penniless. And a few bucks left. Uh, and um, not too many. And uh, deciding what was I going to do next. 
thinking maybe I should have stayed in graduate school, one of those graduate schools If you had anyway. just stayed four weeks in law school <laughs> instead of two, you'd be okay. That's right. Four weeks of law school is really all you need. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. When you think about it. So I, you were in the village trying so, to figure out what you were going to do with your life. Yes, and a couple of job interviews. And was I going to stay in retail or, or you know, start over and do something else? I wasn't young. I mean, it was already past 40. And so uh, one day, uh, but then I, I moved from my brother's old flat on 6th and 12th to my own on Cornelia Street. And one day I was shopping at Murray's which had opened in 1940, and they always had lines there. You know, stand there behind, you know, Ed Koch or whatever. Right, and it was, I when I first got to New York, Murray's was the cool village cheese shop. Um, yes, and there were lots of cheese shops around town still. It started as a dairy shop. Murray was gone. He had died before I, I came to the village, which was about 30 years ago. And, uh, and so um, I heard Louie, who was Murray's clerk, uh, say to one of the uh, customers in front of me that he'd lost his lease. Uh, that is when it expired the following summer. It was around Christmas then. That he, uh, you know, he'd lost his lease and was closing up shop, and he was going back to Calabria. So when it was my turn, I said, "Well, why don't you move to the corner, uh, corner Bleecker and Cornelia? It was empty then and now." Right. Um, and he said, "No, I didn't really. You know, who's going back?" So I said, well, I'll buy it because I knew retail and food right. retail better than And most. you knew dairy. Dairy. And I'd had cheese shops in the gourmet store. So um, we made a deal and, you know, uh, that's what happened. He decided to wait a year and he came behind the counter. So all the customers said that, uh, you know, that uh, you know, thought that he was still the owner, which suited me fine. Because when you're the new kid on the block in Greenwich Village... Greenwich Village is both one of the most progressive uh, neighborhoods in in the United States. And the most parochial. But also that. Change is automatically considered to be a bad thing. All change in the village is by nature bad. (laughs) It was better before. Right. That's often true. But unfortunately, that's not the way it is. And and so, uh, but, but that's what happened. And we moved to the corner. And uh, I went, uh, I started over behind the counter as a cheesemonger. I was 43 at the time. Wow. And I stayed on the counter, I guess, until I was 50. Wow. So, yeah, this wasn't a sort of, you weren't looking for global domination. You were looking for something that you liked to do, that you, that you were good at, that you could make a living. I only wanted to make a living. I thought if we could get the sales up, sufficiently with, you know, with the cost that we had, rent and other things, if I could make $50,000 a year, I could pay my rent and take a two-week vacation. That was my goal. That was my only goal, the only one that I remember. I had no um, higher goals. Uh, I was always interested in the cheese and in the customers, and I realized early on that Almost every customer that came in, almost all locals, were interesting in some way. They might not have been famous in the sense that, you know, we know it now or even then, but they were doing interesting things. This one was a poetry editor of The New Yorker. This one was, a, you know, was the writer that you, whose book you had read, but you didn't know what they looked like. 
And so it was fascinating to me. And you love that. I love that because it wasn't just the cheese I realized. I had a very romantic notion of the mom and pop store. Uh, On my office wall, I have a picture, a blown up picture of my grandfather's store in Perth Amboy, New Jersey in 1925. And he's standing there with my grandmother and his brother Murray, not this Murray, but his brother Murray, my great uncle Murray, and his wife Bessie, and two little kids are sitting on a stoop there. One is my father, Stanley, and his cousin, Bessie's daughter. And my father is five in the picture. So I had a very romantic notion about the mom and pop store, mm-hmm. how, they, how they were merchandised. And of course, they've disappeared uh, for the most part. Uh, but if they exist anywhere, even now, as they're still disappearing, it's in New York City. And so uh, it was also the appeal of the mom and pop shop sort of Which returning to my roots. Which you have maintained to this day. I mean, there's there's a Murray's Cheese counter in Grand Central, but there's really only one Murray's Cheese shop. After, and that's not that has to be out of design. Yeah, well, how do you maintain that feeling, which is such a great feeling, uh, and then, uh, you know, st- keep pace with the times? That's not an easy thing to do. And so we talk about that. You know, the good people help because obviously if you have people that are passionate about the cheese and can engage with the customers, they will overlook, you know, quite a bit of uh, of other uh, faults or flaws or foibles. But there's no question that even when we moved from the original store up Cornelia Street to the corner in the old Durando Meat Market, right. which is the size of this studio that we're speaking in now, right. I said, oh, this is too fancy. Right. And then when we moved across the street to a really larger store, right. which by supermarket size might be, well, our store there is probably 5,000 square feet right. now. Uh, but a new Kroger is 120,000 square feet. So it's all relative. And, of course, we're all used to, at least in downtown, but a lot of us are used to crowded aisles like the old Balducci's, for example, you know, where the aisles are two feet wide. And right. They were, there we were behind the counter, and the counter to the back counter is two feet and big guys because it had that, you know, butcher-like feel to mm-hmm. things back in the old days. And now everybody has uh, college degrees and can speak intelligently about everything. So you... Open Murray's, you moved it across the street. Was it just luck that your interest dovetailed with the explosion of interest in food? It was more like a miracle, I would say. <laughs> I, you know, I, have to, I have to put a spiritual element on it here. I think that cheese is part of the larger food movement. You yourself have had a huge impact on that. So there were some retailers. And certainly, you know, the well-known ones here in New York were were and are still perhaps the best known. The, Z- the, the Zabars or the Balducci's is gone, of course, and Dean and DeLuca is not quite the same. same but right. but there were no big box stores. There were no right. Whole Foods. There were no Trader Joe's. Yep. Uh, there were no millennials shopping. Right. And, you know, so, um, so it was a mix of people. And, of course, uh, Murray... Louis told me, and Louis, when I bought it, 
you know, they used to drive around before there were big distributors, and, you know, if you had too much cheese, it's not as perishable as produce or fish. It's sort of in the middle, you Got might it. say. And so they, uh, but if they had too much of whatever it was, they'd peddle it around to the small cheese shops. Murray, apparently, would buy it off the back of the truck for a dollar a pound and trim it up in the back room, you know, and sell it for two dollars. Well, that's not so different than, you know, an old time supermarket. I grew up, when I grew up in our small town in New Jersey, we had one of our family stores. And uh, it was an old A&P, and you had to walk down a ramp to get into the store. It was like that. Yeah, sure. So I sort of had that sense of it. Uh, but the fact that it changed, yeah, the market began to change. Uh, you know, I met the cheese people. Steve, Steve Jenkins, Jenkins came over right. to help me. Steve was, um, Steve at the time was at Dean and DeLuca as the uh, cheese uh, master over there. And uh you know, I was looking for some help with um, buying. You know, where do you get all this stuff here in New York? And I got a few names, and I met a few people that were considered to be cheese experts at the time. Steve and I hit it off. He'd walk over from Prince and Broadway over to Bleecker Street, and we'd sit downstairs in the cellar of that old store with the uh, ovens of Zito's next door blowing in right. coal dust into our lungs. And, <laughs> right. you know, and we'd try and outdo each other with signs, because he was always a great sign guy. Yes. And I had to learn how to do that. Right, and that's when I came to New York and saw the genius cheese merchandising that was going on. And it really was about those signs that made, that made me want to try half the cheeses I tried. Yeah. So later, when I finally was doing enough business to feel comfortable with hiring a 40-hour person to replace me on the counter, then I began to do my serious travels of the known cheese world and began to teach at um, NYU, New School Ice, Macy's uh, Cellar, you know, uh, and eventually our own classrooms. And so, uh, and, and you know, then I wrote a cheese book. It's, you know, it's not... Um, and it's not in print anymore, but I had to figure out it how to write about... It was a cool book. I still have it. I had to write about... How do you write about 300 cheeses without, you know, without saying yep. salty or... Right. Deserative right. or whatever. Tangy. Yeah, right, right. You know earthy. <laughs> right. How many times can you use earthy in a cheese book? Exactly. But at the same time, the cheese was only part of the larger cheese yeah. world. There was TV coming, and there were celebrity chefs coming, and there was farm-to-table coming. And, you know, and we'd read about, you know, both ends of it, things that were a little esoteric. The wine guys, of course, craft beer guys came along, you know. Uh, but, you know, uh, but those of us perhaps of an earlier time, we'd read you and find out, well, what about the burger? Now let's talk about bagels. Let's talk about pastrami. And even now, the Carnegie Delis and the rest of them, you know, what happens to all of that? And there is no question. There's a nostalgic, a romantic thing. One of the things about Murray's that appealed to me is I felt like I was rescuing one of these because he was, in fact, in going, uh, in fact, going out of business. And I think it's probably a good business model for a lot of young people that have gone into food. Find something that's probably going to go out of business where somebody's ready to retire. There's no kids that are coming into it. You know, make a deal. And then, you know, build it in a modern way. And, you know, it's not a bad way to do things. No. There's problems with real estate, of course. In New York. In New York. So expensive. 
but um, but but there's a lot of good people to work uh, here yes. in New York. Sure. So when you grew the business, a you got into buying direct, going to Europe, and that must have been fun. For a long time, about ten years, I had the best job in New York. <laughs> you know, and I would know that because. Um, you, you had know, some of the workshops in New York. That's right. <laughs> you know, the bankers were moving downtown, and they'd say, well, you know, or if I'd meet someone, they'd say, what do you do? Or I'd say, what do you do? And, oh, I'm, you know, I work for Goldman Sachs. What do you do? I'm a cheesemonger. I go buy cheese for Murray's, which, oh, wow, you know, wow, that sounds like a good job. So uh, that's what I would do, you know, to all these little villages and valleys, you know, in Spain and Italy and France, and people would take me around. You know, and you eat there locally and you drink their wines and whatevers, and that's what I did. And, and yes, I was having trouble with the distributors. They weren't giving me what I wanted in terms of quality or selection. And, and I said, why do I need them? So I uh, set up my own pipeline with help from some, uh, some friends that knew how to do that because the logistics are complicated, licenses, legal, not legal, ships, boats, planes, trucks. But we did. We set up the pipeline so that everything was controlled from that little valley town or a village uh, into what finally became cheese caves here in New York. In our current location, we put cheese caves right. in the cellars and classrooms up in the mezzanine. Right. So let's talk about cheese caves for a second. In Europe, there was a craft called affinage, right? Mm -hmm. Which is really the ripening of cheese that would take place in caves. And so when you first were going there, you didn't have the ability to ripen cheese. So you were buying cheese that was already ripe mm -hmm. and selling it. And then at what point, like what was the lever that had to be pulled for you to realize, okay, if I do this here, and if I learn from people on how to do it well, I could gain a lot, not just financially, but just having control of the product. Most of those countries, the cheese shops may have, you know, aging rooms. Uh, French mostly, of course. That's who I learned it from. But it would be typical for a shop to have, you know, a cave, an aging cellar or whatever. So it was really just a question of instead of putting everything in one just cold storage walk-in refrigerator... You know, separating them out into whatever number would be the, the basic number, like you would see abroad, and having temperature, humidity, and um, airflow control. Mm -hmm. uh, the chemistry of it was unknown to me at the time, or any of us really, and so we began to learn that. Now, the fellow that's our cave master over in our Long Island City, where we all are now, He's, you know, I mean, he's a chemist. He's, he's, you know, he's, right. he's a true scientist. He knows a lot about molds and yeah, he's cultures. He's spent more than two weeks in law school. He's spent <laughs> more than two weeks in graduate school. He knows a school. lot. Yeah. So he's growing things. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. He's testing things. The food safety is off the charts. They're getting tested every day. Um, you know, it's really quite a sophisticated operation. It is not. A uh, it is not a money maker. No, 
it's a it's a subsidy, if anything at all. But again, we only really were selling quality and service. I mean, what else is there? So uh, uh, maybe variety, I suppose you'd throw in there. But uh, it was all about quality and service. So I was a quality for how do you maintain the quality? Because a lot of the cheeses that you'll find around, particularly in supermarkets, they were okay once. At some point in yeah, time. Yeah, when somebody made them, they were, they were okay. Uh, it didn't have to be the best brie or raw milk camembert, which is illegal anyway, although for a while we were able to get our hands on things like that. But, uh, you know, if, if, they're, if they're wrapped in cryovac, you know, and left sit for weeks... Uh, or uh, they're not taken care of at all because nobody has any real respect for the food, that's not good. So it's just a question of setting that sort of thing up the same way you would with training your people, uh, you know, about what they're talking about. That's, that's really all it is. And for you, training your customers and educating your customers and your staff, it seems to be a really, really important part of what you do in your business. I mean, you have classes. And whenever I walk in, I'm always amazed that how much the people behind the counter have to tell me. I'm not just saying this because you and I have known each other a long time. I bought some cheese there last week before I went to see a movie. And I asked her about a certain cheese. And, and she proceeded to tell me more than I ever thought anyone could know about that cheese, <laughs> you know. And, and, and I think... But I think that's an important marketing tool. But I also think it's part of the DNA of what you do. Yes, I think uh, we have all had encounters where we didn't know anything about something. You know, I had to learn wine, but I'm not a wine expert. You know, um, craft beers might be, you know, it's still a growing category. But the point of the matter is, uh, we didn't grow up in a cheese culture the way, uh, if assuming we grew up here in the United States, the way the French or the Italians or even the Spanish did. And so consequently, you know, we were learning. We're learning ourselves. And uh, so uh, you can uh, make somebody feel uncomfortable, you know, because you know a lot about something that uh, is fairly obscure, like a lot of these cheeses are, at least for the when they're introduced into uh, for the first time, but uh, it was always our goal to make people feel comfortable to make the thing, the cheeses accessible. Otherwise, what's the point of all those signs and labels and all the rest? So education is really the core of our business, the, the heart of the business, because um, that's all we really do out there in the, in the supermarkets out there in America, essentially. It's education, training. You know, what is this? Why would I want to bother about it? You don't have to be a, a big expert, but do I like goat cheese or not? Most people will say, well, I don't like goat cheese, right. you know, but they never had this. Or they don't like brie because it tasted like, you know, ammonia. Or whatever it was, they've never had the real experience. And so by taking out that fear and making it comfortable and saying, hey, you know, it's just cheese. It's been around for thousands of years. You know, dairy farmers, milk preserved, all the things you and I have known, or, you know, uh, that would by now might seem like cliches. Uh, they're all true. And so consequently, um, you know, you get comfortable with what you like and, uh, and you buy that. 
And then, of course, we discontinue it, and you can't find it anymore, and you call me up and say, I want some of that cheese. Where did it go? You have this incredible program with Kroger's uh, where there are 350 Murray's cheese counters in Kroger's supermarkets, which is one of the largest supermarket chains in the world. Yes, Kroger's the largest supermarket chain in the United States, although Walmart sells more food than they do and the fifth largest in the world. They do $115 billion a year. Uh, uh, one day, about 10 years ago, three fellows in suits walked in and asked for the <laughs> proprietor. You know, when somebody comes in with a suit, especially in Greenwich Village, it's like, hmm, so are you from the government? <laughs> uh, are you here to shake me down? Or, right. You know, what do you want? But they were uh, very nice uh, uh, fellows and said to me, uh, listen, you know, we've been here several times. When we come to New York, we make the tour of all, all the usual suspects. It still happens quite a bit. And, uh, and we'd like to test some, you know, would you put cheese shops in our three yes. of our store stores out in Cincinnati in our home-based town? And I said, no. They said, why not? I said, well, that doesn't sound like that much fun, really. I been in the supermarket business, been there, done that, and I'm familiar with yours because I'd still get the the supermarket trades, news or whatever, yeah, yeah. the trades, yeah. And so, uh, but they were persistent. I couldn't think, I said, okay, assuming we do this, how do you do the quality and service? Furthermore, they wanted to buy the cheese directly. Now, all the cheese that we have, you know, comes into, now it comes into our warehouse or into the caves. Uh, but that's all for retail here in New York or the restaurants or the online business. So I knew I'd have to work with distributors. I had to figure that part out because I'd already, you know, I wasn't happy about that. But it turns out there's some really good ones. I just never heard of them. They're in other parts of the country. Still, uh, you know, so I had to figure out how the quality might be controlled. Uh, but after I was comfortable with that, and this all took two years. Um, the service thing was really bothering me because, you know, I'd worked in supermarkets. They can be pretty alienating environments. It's very difficult sometimes to motivate people that work in supermarkets, and for good reason, because uh, I was one of them myself. So your obsession with training and education was really a huge question mark. Huge. But when we went in and did the test stores finally in Cincinnati, it turned out that, first of all, uh, there were plenty of people that were interested in doing something new. Uh, second of all, most of the people had never had any real training in the products. They have training in customer service and stocking shelves and tasks like that, but not in what is it, where does it come from, Nothing about Providence, which is our world, or, or what you do with it, or what you serve with it, or what, how it tastes. Uh, so that was good. Then, of course, we were building actual little boutiques, branded Murray's, uh, that weren't too much smaller than the old Grand Central store, if at all. And so you had this little island, usually near the front, it's part of the delis, but separate, you know, where you could go over and have this mom-and-pop experience interesting in, inside in this giant, giant supermarket right which as i say can be 
an alienating experience. We're living in a demand economy now, so it's only getting more difficult. So um, we went back a year later uh, to see if the test results were okay. I didn't think they really were. I thought my expectations were higher, but they were quite pleased and said uh, we'd like to do, you know, 50 more over the next few years. So uh, that's when I began to gear up and began to uh, become, uh, spend more time in business-related things. Business-related things are accounting and payables and legals and contracts, and they're about human resources and hiring. And it's not the fun stuff. It's not traveling around here and there. <laughs> it's, it's not, not hanging traveling. out in Vermont. It's not going to some mountain chalet in Switzerland and discovering a Gruyere that nobody else has ever it's had not before. not that at all. So, uh, but on the other hand, it has its upsides too, uh, and I had just started a young family at the same time. So uh, that was fortuitous from that point of view to be able to start to grow a business in that way, shape, or form. And, um, and that's what we've been doing uh, ever since. It's uh, eight years since we opened the first three in Cincinnati. But even of that 350, the scaling... The, in chain stores, you hear the word scalability, scalable a lot. Maybe you do in Silicon yeah. Valley, too. I, Maybe I heard everywhere. it in serious seats about every other day. That's right, right. It's an annoying phrase, but it's uh, understandable because uh, it makes things... Uh, well, Kroger's makes... needs things to be scalable. Yeah, because let's face it, uh, even to get a 1% sales growth is a billion dollars, and that's not easy. Right. Um, so, uh, in any event, that's what happened, and this year we'll probably open 100 stores. Wow. And so, you're in 350 stores, and how many kinds of cheese do they sell? Um, there are about 450 or 500 SKUs or items, cheese and other, in these departments. And more and more, they're becoming, you know, Murray's branded label. The product mix changes. Uh, we tie into their larger promotions. It's only recently that they've started doing an Italian promotion. Right. You know, whereas, you know, we might have been deep in the book 25 years ago for Tuscany before we moved on to Umbria or Liguria sure. or wherever, Puglia. And, and I would go to Puglia and buy $50,000 worth of merchandise and have it shipped back right. to New York City. So in a way, we're educating them about food uh, in the sense of our world and the world of a lot of New Yorkers, whether they're, they're in our field or not, because everybody eats like we do. Yes. It's, it, it, it's sort of you, you're staying true to your local personal roots without selling out in a you know yes you're you're obviously losing some control but in a way it's it is very much what you started out to do writ large yes because it uh, the people that are working in those stores who who get continual training and they have to come to New York first even before they even start uh, it has created its own sort of movement if you will in other words uh, Murray's uh, staff wear red red coats, you know, the red chef coats. So 
um, what uh, everyone has to go through is called uh, red jacket training. Right. So instead of Hamburger University, you have Cheese University. Same thing. Yeah. The thing of it is that we have almost trained almost 5,000 red jackets uh, now in these last number of years. And then what happened on top of that was the American Cheese Society, which you're familiar with, which is a little tiny our organization, cheesemakers, retailers, and so forth, um, you know, began a certification program, which we talked about for 25 years. Uh, but now there is one where you can take the, the course and take the test, and the test is not easy. And so uh, consequently, but if you pass, you get, uh, you become a CCP, a certified cheese professional, you get a certificate. So it's like legit. <laughs> Yes, it's becoming like being a sommelier or becoming a chef, perhaps. Right. There is a certification program for what, you know, we've always called, you know, cheesemonger. Uh, Only now it's certified cheese professional. So we're really helping. And 20% of all of them, you know, are Murray's people now. And they'll probably eventually be 50%. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we've created a new profession for that odd group of people that is passionate about cheese. I know, and it's so weird because, you know, you had Liz Thorpe working for you for many years, and then there was a, and she went to Yale, and she's written some for Serious Eats. We we had an intern who went to work for you, and there are all these people that, that, in, uh, that their parents couldn't imagine they were going to come home from Yale or Harvard or Georgetown or Stanford or Dartmouth or Princeton and go, uh, yeah, I want to be a cheesemonger. It's sad but true for the parents. Uh, <laughs> I, I must say when I bought Murray's, uh, uh, the story you just heard, um, you know, my father did say, um, are you out of your effing mind? Uh <laughs> Nobody eats cheese anymore. You know, it's cholesterol day. You know, steak hadn't come back, let alone pork melons. Right. So it's, uh, it is true. Yesterday we had a uh, 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 town hall meeting, we call it, and uh, people get up and tell where they came from and how they came to be here. Yeah, and a lot of people in that room are like that. Yes, they are... and they all went to schools that you and I couldn't get into. Well, there's no question we couldn't get into them today. They actually let me into one of those back then. That's right, you then. went to Cornell. They let me into one of those back then. and uh, It was a fluke, though. It was. Well, you know, it was the 60s. You know, they'd let anybody in, you know. <laughs> we, you know as long as we didn't have to go to class, it was fine. So, um, yeah, there we have a lot of people uh, like that. My number two guy is one of them now. You know, he, he was Liz's number two on the Kroger project. She went off to do her own thing. He, became, he, he started to run. He was a math major at Wesleyan and has a master's degree in music conducting. He was going to be a conductor. <laughs> I love it. So that's my crew. That's great. So what is the ultimate goal? I mean, it would be great if uh, cheese, good cheese, I call it traditional cheeses. I don't use the word artisan that much, but, you know, perhaps it's worth figuring out what to call it all. Uh, it, you know, becomes ubiquitous, yeah, as a, you know, as a regular part of the American diet. But again, as part of the larger thing, you know, whether it's farmer's markets and farm to table and sourcing this out of the other thing, I think the food movement seems to be well entrenched. As I said, it's 35 years since I did my first upscale market, and that was a supermarket, and clearly there were pioneers long before that. 
in all aspects of our business. You know who the food writers were and the food critics Absolutely. were. Absolutely. And look, we're we're the luckiest sons of bitches on the planet when it, when it really comes down to it. You know, it's like you took an interest in cheese and I was the guy who wrote about hamburgers for the New York Times and made it into a business. And you took, you know, the, the fact that you were the dairy guy at your parents' supermarket and turned it into a business that, that in many ways you love. Yes, but I can't say I'm a goals guy. I, you know, every, you know, yes, I'd like to lose ten pounds this year again. But you know, but I'm familiar with that. It doesn't tend to, you know. Uh, but I, I'm more of a process sort of person. I actually tend to look at it in terms of <clears throat> fun, believe it or not, because obviously I didn't plan a career. So, am I having fun? <laughs> Still or look, not. Right. And if That's, I'm not, what would I rather be doing? Yeah. So I'll do this as long as it's fun. And at such point where I don't think it's that much fun anymore, I'll let somebody else do it. Got it. All right. Now it's time for the special sauce, all-you-can-answer buffet, no pressure. So, Rob, what's in your desert island fridge? Parm. Okay. <laughs> There's a chunk of parm. There is some um, creme fraiche or sour cream that I can glom onto things. There's certainly some decent coffee. There's usually a, a bottle of, uh, you know, some orange juice or oranges uh, to eat. Really good chocolate. Maybe a pint of ice cream. Doesn't care. Don't care so much what the flavor, flavor is. is. Or even the brand. I keep we we keep bringing in new brands of wonderful ice cream. I know you cream. have so many brands of ice cream. So I'm not sure what my favorite is right now. I mean, there's a Van Leuven around the corner from my house, on 10th Street. But you so. carry like McDonald's from uh, from Santa Barbara. Yeah, right? and I've got an espresso of theirs in my freezer right now. That's now I tried it the other day. And it's really fairly assertive in its coffeeness. And I thought, hmm, you know, it's uh, it's good. It's very good, almost too good. But then I found a jar of caramel sauce, the goat caramel sauce. <laughs> that to the... put on the ice cream? Yes. And then I had a perfect combo. <laughs> I see. So who's at your last supper, no family allowed? Well, it wouldn't be bad to hear what Bob Dylan had to say if you could Right, if you could him get him safe, to talk. If you could get him to talk. All right, I like that. You so know, the other day, some, one of our friends told me that she got flirted with by an old man, and she was having a great time in Midtown. And then she realized she was talking to uh, Mel Brooks, who's 90. And I thought, oh, he'd be fun to have dinner All right, with. so I like this. Mel Brooks and Bob Dylan. This is an excellent start <laughs> You'd to be table. good. All right. Bud Trillin's always a Bud Trillin is one great, of our favorites and a funny, mutual like friend. Mark Twain. He's the greatest. So, so I mean, I, this you know. is great. One more. So you, I, I'd like a woman to round out the table. Yeah, so would I. Uh, but I have to tell you, and this is going to sound kind of corny, but I'd have to go with my wife, Nina Plank. I know, but see, I, <laughs> I know, Nina's oh, amazing. No, but okay, okay, okay. No family. I, no family, nobody like that. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, for a while, I had a steady customer uh, when she was living in New York by the name of uh, Julia Roberts, and I must say... Really? I had such a crush on her. <laughs> I can't even begin to tell you. So Julia Roberts, Bob Dylan, <laughs> yeah. Mel Brooks, and me. There you go. I like and this. And Bud. And Bud and, and Calvin Trillin, the greatest. Yeah, right. Um, 
what are you eating at the Last Supper? The other night I had to cook. I made a salad with creamy blue cheese dressing with my secret creamy blue cheese dressing. dressing you know, sort of palm steakhouse style. Mm-hmm. I grilled up some uh, lamb chops that were all garlicky in the black skillet and made, smoked up the house. I made some baked potatoes with sour cream. You know, my tastes are extremely simple. Yeah. Uh, I like this. We had Murray's s'mores for dessert, which, you know, one of the chocolate guys makes for us, you know, with some ice cream. I have very, I, I don't think purist is the right word, but I have very, I like comfort foods that are made with better ingredients. Isn't yeah, really me too. that the main trend that. I, you identified the trend yourself. Yeah, I mean, true. really, all those burgers and all those pastrami sandwiches and all those bagels. I mean, they ask me when Kroger comes into town, they ask me for my favorite cheese, a, a, a question I, I truly despise. And, of course, my, my cheese in my fridge has changed over the years because I used to buy all these cheeses, and they could be anything, exotic cheeses that nobody ever heard of. Didn't have to be, but there were a lot of them. Right. But now I have a nine-year-old and two seven-year-olds, you know, so the emmethol is sliced in the packs. Right. You know, and the cheddar isn't necessarily from Neil's Yard Dairy anymore. <laughs> right. You know, the farm's the same. Neil's Yard Dairy is this great um, dairy in in uh, London that, that gathers many, many great English cheeses. Right. So, you know, that's that's we have stuff to go in kids... <laughs> You have string cheese. Exactly. Rob Cavalli has string cheese in his refrigerator. I love that. Exactly. So what do you cook when there's nothing in the house to eat? Uh, we've been known to have quite a few grilled cheese sandwiches with the leftover bits. That was you obvious. Do, you do need the bread and the butter. Uh, we also been known to have peanut butter and jelly quite often. Same thing. It's just the jelly and the peanut butter as well as the bread. So when there's nothing in the house, there's that. And then, of course, we all have a great big stack of takeout menus. Right. You know, and you and I had a similar lunch today from that very source. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's interesting because peanut butter and jelly, is it um, reg? does it have to be uh, chefy peanut butter and good jam or can it be Smucker's and Skippy? There are, it, you, we have our own line of jams now from Lady right. in Vermont that really are better. Uh, the peanut butter usually just has peanuts in it. Maybe some have salt, but there wouldn't be anything else anyway. So it's hard to say, you know, in answer to your question. I think your question sort of, I guess the question, how I might rephrase it if I might, is of the industrial foods in these supermarkets, which is where, after all, I came out of, you know, what are the great industrial foods? And, you know, yeah, Haagen-Dazs is still good. It's amazing. Uh, Heinz ketchup's not bad. It's good. Yep. Hellman's mayonnaise is good, and there's a lot of good mayonnaises out there. So there's, you know, we have like our own little list, Nina and I, because she's much more yes. health conscious. She's the real, you know, yeah. she grew up on organic up, vegetable yeah. farm. So she does walk the walk. Right. And talk the talk more than I do. I'm the dad that provides the cheats <laughs> and the sweets. And there's mom looking and don't tell mom stuff, you know, if we can get away with it. Right. Uh, in so that like, sense, yeah. So what's the one thing that you that you really need to hide from Nina that would just drive her insane? Well, she, in terms of ingredients, she is not a fan of corn syrup. And okay. So, you know, but I mean, not, not ingredients, like a thing. 
Like, oh, you mean what might we? Yeah, eat? like what guilty pleasure? I passed pleasure. out um, uh, frozen uh, Milky Way. I bought a bag at the Halloween store, you know, <laughs> of the, the mini little... Milky Ways, and I hid them in the freezer under a bunch <laughs> of other stuff. Under some kelp. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the things you put on your knee when it hurts. <laughs> All the Murray's ice packs, and you were that just we hoping that Nina didn't hurt her knee. <laughs> exactly, and but they were. Jacob discovered it immediately, and when she wasn't around, we passed them out. And we all, you know, you know, it's like a bro broken teeth experience. And Rose doesn't have any front teeth anyway. So the main thing is, what do you do with this, Dad? And they don't know any of these. They don't know the difference, right, between a, a, a Milky Way, a Snickers. I mean, we go into a, a, out in our country place. It's an old fashioned candy store. And they say, "What's? Do you know what this stuff is?" And I said, "Yes, atomic fireballs. Yes, Bonomo's Turkish taffy. Yes, <laughs> yeah, right. Mister Good Bars. Yes, the list is endless. Yes, we all know what those are. <laughs> they don't. That's funny. So, who would you love to have a one-on-one -on -one lunch with? Any person, again, living or dead, that you think um, would be endlessly fascinating? That you would have." fun with and would just regale you endlessly with interesting stories? I don't know if it would be fun, but I have been reading up on my... Um, I have actually been attending um, services. I know. You, yeah, you invited me to... Because we were going to do congregation. this. New congregation. I'm so... Uh, non-observant that I asked you to be on special sauce on Yom Kippur. I was like, okay, Ed, don't do that again. So we have this wonderful new rabbi. He's Israeli, but recently ordained in his 40s. Who, uh, and so, and we have a little group thing. Right, right. So I am reading Maimonides. Maimonides. Spinoza. Spinoza. Stuff like that. I mean, you know, we made we're fooling around and saying, you know, you know, who's on your top ten Jews list? You know, Jesus is number one, Moses number two, King David's number three. But then you get into like four, five, and ten. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's Einstein maybe is on right. there. I don't know if Bob Dylan makes the list. You know, but he maybe. Right. But you know, it's Maimonides and Spinoza. You know, that that so sort you of think, thing. You, so I'd like to learn things yeah. at this point. So Spinoza, Spinoza is pretty interesting, and nobody's ever come up with him before. <laughs> I, I want to learn. I want somebody that's really smart but wise. Right. That can tell me things. I'm, you know, I'm heading into, you know, these years. I, I want to, I want a wisdom now. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rob Kaufelt, for sharing your special sauce with us. Oh, it's been, it's been awesome. And, uh, you know, if you're in New York, go to Murray's Cheese Shop or the restaurant right next door. Wherever you are, you can shop online at Murray's. The catalog is great. And go to a Kroger's. 350 Kroger's by the end of the year have Murray's cheese shop counters. So anyway, Rob, it's been a gas. And we'll see you next time, Serious Eaters. Thanks, Eddie. Good to be here. This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue. The next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. 
wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave? Whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home or takeout. I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork, egg foo young, sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery, and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash altitude go when you apply live every day your way with the altitude go card learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go limited time offer the creditor and issue of this card is u.s bank national association pursuant to a license from visa usa inc some restrictions may apply from P- 